0: Jim, are the kids out of the house? I want to make sure that when we record this episode, there's nice peace and
1: quiet. <laughs> uh, yeah, they've been successfully kicked out. <laughs> Good.
0: I mean, <laughs> speaking of, how's it been to have all three kids at home, right? They're not in school. You're working full time. What's oh, it like? yeah,
1: A uh, piece of cake. No problem. Uh, <laughs> not really. Steph and I you know, both work, so it's it's been tough. I mean, we had a nanny, uh, but she actually she moved just before COVID, so we've been on our own for six months. But thankfully, we just hired someone because mm. we were we were kind of losing it. If I'm honest, <laughs> uh, well, but good. It, she's she's been amazing. It's it's been a game changer having someone.
0: I'm happy to hear that because nannies and other home care workers are essential, not just. Because they're taking care of your kids, they're essential to you, but they're allowing you to do your work. So
1: in other words, they're essential to our economy. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt. We're utterly dependent on them. Well, let's talk about that on this episode and how the pandemic has shown a light on how essential and undervalued domestic work really is. Welcome back to Technopolis, the COVID edition, where technology is still disrupting, remaking, and sometimes overrunning our cities. I'm Jim Capsis. I was a climate negotiator in the Obama administration, and now I advise tech startups. And I'm Molly Turner. I teach urban innovation
0: at the Berkeley Haas School of Business, and I was the first policy director at Airbnb. Today, we're talking about domestic workers, the people who go to work in other people's homes.
1: You know, when the pandemic shut down most of the country back in March, people paid a lot of attention to the workers that couldn't do their jobs, like people at restaurants or barber shops. Even there was this big story about the Kennedy Center and the musicians not being able to go to work. Mm -hmm. But there seemed to be less about the people who clean our houses, who provide childcare, care for our elders, or people with disabilities.
0: Because that work is quote unquote, hidden in people's homes. And historically, it's been done by Black women and more recently also by Latino women and immigrant women or women who embody all of those identities. So frankly, it's not surprising that there's been little, if any, recognition of the value of that work.
1: And, you know, these are the most vulnerable people. I mean, according to the Economic Policy Institute, three quarters of domestic workers live under the poverty line. Wow. And really, the federal government has put in place almost no workplace protections for them.
0: Which means that when the pandemic hit, they had even less of a safety net than other workers did. Back in April, the National Domestic Workers Alliance surveyed their members and found that 72% had no jobs in April. 95% had their work canceled by their clients. And of those, 70% didn't know whether their clients would even rehire them after the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that has had a huge impact on their livelihoods. 55% were unable to pay April's rent. 77% were worried they'd get evicted. And 85%
1: worried they wouldn't be able to afford food. Those are terrible stats. Yeah. Well, to help us get the story behind those numbers, we're going to talk with Pollock Shaw today. She's the Social Innovations Director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, a group that advocates for domestic workers. And she created a lab
0: at the alliance to experiment Hmm. with how technology that's more worker-centric might improve the nature of that work.
1: So in Silicon Valley, Pollock, there's a lot of activity always around automation and robots and the future of work. Future
0: of work is robot. Robotic baristas, my favorite. But
1: <laughs> why why is domestic work so important and can it even get automated and roboticized?
0: Well,
2: so if you take a look at all the data that we have, right, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and you think about where is job growth going to happen... Care jobs, domestic work jobs, child care jobs, health care jobs, home care jobs, right, where you're caring for those who are aging, are the jobs of the future. They are one of the largest, fastest growing occupations in the country. Mm-hmm. But these jobs are actually poverty wage jobs. And so when we think about where is the future of work going, right, and you say, okay, well, which jobs are actually going to be automated or which jobs are going to be
0: outsourced? It's not care jobs. Yeah, you can't, a robot can't That's do right. that.
2: You can't have somebody in, Another country taking care of your aging parents, and yeah. you're not going to be able to. You know, I've been talking to people who are working on this, and I think there's a lab in California that's been working on a robot trying to try and get a fold a towel for like 11 years, right? So if you
0: think <laughs> about <laughs> what was the name of the nanny from the Jetsons? Didn't, wasn't the nanny from the Jetsons a robot? Exactly. I think so.
1: That's definitely a fantasy. There's no way a robot can handle my children. No way.
0: <laughs> I wish. Yeah. So, so I
2: think that you know. So So what we know right now is that the jobs of the future, right, the jobs that are growing are also jobs, care jobs, are not going to be able to be automated or outsourced. Mm -hmm. And what's challenging, I think, is that dominant ideas around creating good jobs are about getting people out of so-called bad jobs and putting them into coding school or sending them into some other industry Mm -hmm. that it will be a good job. And I think the assertion of our movement, right, and even what we're trying to do with using technology to improve jobs is to say, hey, these jobs are here to stay. They're an important and large growing part of the economy. And it behooves all of us to make the domestic work economy, the care economy, a place for fair and
0: dignified work.
2: Yeah, of course. And that is really the mission of our movement.
0: Can you tell us what is the National Domestic Workers Alliance?
2: The National Domestic Workers Alliance is the nation's voice for the two million plus mostly women who work in the field of caregiving for others and caregiving for homes. Other people's homes are their workplaces, which isn't really how we normally think about work.
0: Yeah, that makes a particularly difficult workplace. Can you explain like some of the unique challenges they face by working in someone else's home as opposed to working in an office or a factory? Definitely.
2: I mean, one, it's isolating Right. Mm. I mean, we're used to when we go to work or at least in a pre-COVID moment when we went to work. Right. That there is the kind of camaraderie in an office, the ability to collaborate. You can talk at the water cooler, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Right. There's an HR department. There's rules. There's ways things work. There's ways to escalate problems. None of that exists when you work as a single employee in a single home. There is a tremendous amount of isolation. The second is that no job is the same. Every job is different, which then also contributes to the kind of lack of standardization across the industry. And layered on top of that, in our culture so far, we haven't really seen this work as work. Mm. We even call it help. We don't call it work. That's interesting. And the part about that that's really profound is that So much of that, the assertion of our movement, right, is that because it is performed by women and Mm. that historically this work has either been the unpaid labor of women, whether they were enslaved black women or whether they were women who were expected to do all of this work in families Mm -hmm. for generations, right, and continue Mm -hmm. to do all of this work. And I think one of the opportunities of the COVID pandemic is that it actually is shining a light on how much work it is when people are thrust back into the situation of holding a lot of that work themselves in addition to trying to do their work and work.
1: Sure. Because people now who are reliant on all of these uh, domestic workers, caregivers, house cleaners suddenly no longer having that support. So that maybe that promote some empathy for the situation you know the kind of work that 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 community is is performing
2: I think that's a real reason why the the work that we've been doing around domestic workers as essential workers in this covid pandemic mm. is really resonating and breaking through and causing a I think catalyzing a national conversation about essential work what is essential work in the economy and mm-hmm. especially in the early days of the pandemic it was very clear who was essential in the economy right There's been so many stories. This workforce has been hit so hard by the pandemic. Virtually overnight, people lost work. Like from one week they were working and then the next week we had seven out of 10 workers who literally had no work. And the reason we know this is because through NDWA Labs, through our tech lab, we had built this chatbot on Facebook where we've been um, slowly amassing conversations with 250,000 domestic workers. And it's, I think, one of the greatest single breakthroughs we've had in organizing domestic workers who are impossible to find, right? We don't know where they work. They work Mm -hmm. in the shadows.
0: If you think about it, like historically, labor unions in the United States are organized around one single employer, right? Do you work at this auto manufacturing plant? Or, you know, are you a truck driver and work for these handful of companies? But it seems like the hard thing about your job is you're trying to identify people who work for thousands, millions of different employers who are not a monolith, is that why domestic workers aren't unionized? In the case of domestic workers specifically,
2: when the foundational labor laws of this country were passed in the 1930s, talking about the Fair Labor Standards Act, the National Labor Relations Act that established a whole bunch of conventions and norms around labor and workers' rights, there were only two groups of workers that were excluded. And that was the domestic workers of this country and the farm workers of this country. And the Mm -hmm. reason that they were excluded, right, which means that they did not have the right to minimum wage, they did not have the right to overtime, Mm -hmm. they don't actually have the right to form a union
0: Mm -hmm. as per the federal law. Because of federal law.
2: The reason that they were excluded was because at that time, the workers who were working in the agricultural industry and the domestic work industry were all black. Yeah. And it was a concession that was made to Southern politicians in order to pass all of this worker rights law that all of us benefit when we go to work. And it's mm-hmm. just taken as a norm that minimum wage is mm-hmm. minimum wage. That's how we ended up in the situation that we're in. This is
1: a legacy of segregation, and of Jim Crow slavery. slavery.
2: It's a legacy of right. slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, all of it. And then when you think about, okay, who comprises the domestic work industry today, it continues to be all women for the most part. And mm-hmm. predominant women of color, black women, and now recently immigrant women, who mm-hmm. often domestic work is is the first job that is mm-hmm. and the only job that's often available to immigrants in this country.
0: So do you see a path? Like, what is NDWA's goal? Do, would you like to change federal law to allow these workers to unionize? Or do you have a different vision altogether?
2: Well... This is a really hard problem to solve, right? Because even if we had the right to unionize, the power of a union derives from the fact that you have many workers in one workplace.
1: Yeah. It would seem like hard to picket your employer. It would basically be this amazing distributed protest of people standing in front of <laughs> individual block. houses. Right. right. And
2: also you would just get fired. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, there's no
2: protections. <laughs> right. There's no protections. Yeah. There's no protections, right? Part of the power of a union is that you have rights around retaliation, yeah. right? And, that's, and that, that some of the, the safeguard of coming together in collective action and fighting for your rights is that you are together and yeah. the togetherness has power to it. This problem is actually really, really hard to solve. And we've been working on it in all kinds of entrepreneurial and creative ways. Mm-hmm. So our movement, right, for seven years went to Albany in New York to establish what we were fighting for, which is the New York Domestic Worker Bill of Rights. And the law is put into place to say, hey, you can't go below these minimum standards. And it took seven years, seven years of domestic workers going on buses from New York, telling their stories to legislators. And after seven years of relentless execution, we were able to pass the first Bill of Rights. Since then, we've passed nine more statewide bills and two municipal bills.
0: But so then, is what you're doing in the labs trying to find other ways to make visible this community of workers from the traditional kind of lobbying and organizing? The running hypothesis of NDWA labs has been that technology
2: can be an interesting and helpful enabler for us to solve the problem of improving labor standards for domestic workers because of its ability to scale in a flat way, right?
1: What was the moment that the organization or you realized that? Like, because it seems somewhat novel for an organization like yours to be making this type of investment in developing tech.
0: Yeah, because as far as I could tell, all of the kind of, quote unquote, older school unions have been very opposed or slow to adopting technology as a tool. Uh, I joined
2: the alliance maybe seven seven plus years ago at this point, and it was really right around the time where we started to see Silicon Valley also enter into labor markets, whether it was the emergence of on-demand platforms like you know, Uber, Lyft, Postmates, et cetera, or whether it was marketplaces that were emerging like in our sector, for example, Care.com or Sitter City or Urban Sitter. Mm-hmm. And so we started to see and get a lot of questions around what does this all mean for the domestic mm-hmm. work markets? What's similar about what's emerging um, from Silicon Valley back then and even now and NDWA Labs is that we're both disrupting and innovating. But the Mm. challenge and I think the difference is that we're both disrupting very different things and creating very different forms of innovation. This is what I mean.
0: Say more. Yeah.
2: Silicon Valley is focused on disrupting markets. Mm -hmm. And I think we're focused on disrupting power.
1: Mm. Mm. I like that.
2: And part of The challenge that I see with work and labor markets moving online is that existing unequal power just gets normalized, centralized, and scaled. Real change will take place in our industry when the power shifts, right? Ultimately, as those models get developed, right, investors and venture capital are shaping the lives of Mm -hmm. millions of women, their ability to access work, their ability to find work. They, Mm -hmm. in many cases, could be setting the terms of that work. And frankly, most of these funds are funded and managed by privileged men. And part of it is about whose problem are you solving? And workers are seen as inputs, not users. Mm. In the ways that consumer-facing tech is really functioning right now, it is... I think, overly catering in some ways to the demand side. And that's understandable. It's all rational. To this the people like who a want critique. their homes right. please, Because it's like, so you, you're a yeah. startup. You're, you've got to get to some level is. of monetization. Exactly. Like It makes sense in the logic that exists. But what I'm saying is we actually have to disrupt that logic if we want to improve
1: unequal power. If you're enjoying Technopolis, check out Critical Value, a podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. Recent episodes answer the questions. How can we alleviate food insecurity during the pandemic? And can the research process be hacked? Each episode features experts that use data and evidence to explain what really matters about an issue and why. Critical Value is the podcast for your inner wonk subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so we have three little kids three little girls we have a nanny we use care.com we use other apps so do i so do you (laughs) And and i would say that why did you feel you needed to go and build your own app rather than work through those companies or are you doing both which maybe you are
2: It's a brilliant observation and question. Um, And yeah, we've been doing both. Because my job, right, is to work on shaping the future of this industry um, to be a place of fair and dignified work. That is my job. And that means I can't just work in my own bubble. I also need to work in the real world, which is where a lot of, as you point out, this aggregation is happening. And I think that that piece Um, That aggregation that's happening through Silicon Valley platforms was a major turning point and and like revelatory moment for us too, right? Which is to say, hey, we see the same exact opportunity that you see, which is this aggregation is actually extremely valuable and a massive opportunity to set a virtuous cycle versus a declining cycle, right?
1: So, Pollock, what did you end up deciding to build?
2: So, we... We threw a lot of spaghetti at the wall in the labs. And where we emerged, right, was that we wanted to build something that could solve the problems that the most vulnerable workers in the alliance were facing. And one of the big problems that we realized was that when domestic workers don't go to work, they often don't get paid. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And that is so hard if you're already living on the margins of the economy, that if you have a cancellation for a cleaning, that's basically like,
0: you know, part of your revenue. Yeah. There's no there's no like. there's no there's no slack. or. Yeah. yeah.
2: There's no Slack, right? And so we basically built a technology platform that allows us to extend the safety net beyond the traditional environment of a 40-hour job where you have one employer, for example,
0: mm-hmm. to
2: the domestic worker conditions where you might have 25 or 30 different employers because those are the number of homes you clean in a month and create the piping and infrastructure for a safety net. So what Aaliyah, our platform, does is mm-hmm. it allows for each one of those individual homes to make a micro-contribution, a prorated contribution to the benefits account for a single domestic worker. And so Maria might have 30 different homes, say even if 15 of them climb onto the platform, they're paying $5 a cleaning, that's accruing every month for her to be able to apply towards paid time off or other forms of insurance. and benefits. So
1: you've built an opt-in social safety net.
2: Yes, but we're working on mandating it.
1: I was going to say, you, yeah. Like,
0: how's that going to happen? opt only goes so far, yeah. Exactly, So you're exactly. working with, what is that, state law has to be changed to allow for, I think the term is, right, portable benefits. Is that right?
2: Yep. There's a lot of entrepreneurialism that's happening here around how do you advance the idea of expanding the safety net. Some of it might be in the form of portable benefits. Some of it might be in And something else that policymakers and innovators invent. For us in our movement, the really big breakthrough happened for us in Philadelphia last year in October where we passed the Philadelphia Domestic Worker Bill of Rights. And Mm -hmm. in that Bill of Rights, for the first time, we were able to win a provision that mandates the accrual of portable paid time off regardless of where you work. We're not sure how it's going to happen because the regulatory process still needs to commence. But what was one in the law, right? What the law now says is that for every 40 hours worked, a
0: domestic worker can accrue one hour of pay. And are you hoping they're going to use Aaliyah to implement this? Can like Care.com implement this and basically put your ALIA platform out of business? It might. It could. And would that be okay for you? Like, is that your end goal? Like, would your end goal be that Aaliyah basically gets these laws passed and then no longer needs to exist because the venture-backed platforms are going to implement these things?
1: Yeah, is success I don't know. your obsolescence?
2: <laughs> I, I don't know. I am skeptical about that. I wish that it would maybe, like, uh, unfold in that way. And it was interesting. When I testified to Governor Newsom's Future of Work Commission, I got in a California, lot of yeah. similar—in California, I got a lot of similar questions— and I started talking about, well, you know, conventional ideas around lucrative exits are that you maybe go public or you get bought. And I think for us, a kind of dreamy exit, right, would be <laughs> that the state of California adopts a whole system to extend the safety net to domestic workers and all other informal and cash workers. Like, that wow. would be incredible and an amazing exit. <laughs> Look, I'm
1: really, I'm really curious, though, how do you work with the existing tech companies? Because I'll confess, right, I... I looked at care.com to see whether there was a way that we could participate in ALIA, and I didn't see it. And to me, that just seems like a a missed opportunity on both sides because they're not required to offer it. But I know plenty of people who would want to do that, but don't even know that that option exists.
2: I think it's a great idea. And I think we would really welcome an integration and a partnership with Care.com about that. In some ways, the logic of current platforms, not just Care.com, is that they want to create a walled garden around their platform. They don't want their users to leave their platform. And so I think part of what is exciting and important about what Aaliyah represents is that it allows for people to work in different parts of the economy but still have a benefits account or a -hmm. scaffolding that stays with them. That Mm -hmm. may or may not be totally congruent with what a individual enterprise platform's objectives are. Mm -hmm. And so even if we get to that point, then the question is if you're working one hour here and 10 hours there and 15 hours there, which is an increasing reality for many people in the economy, how then do you still get access to the safety work What we want is for there to be labor market fluidity for the workers. We want workers to be able to like vote with their feet and go to the platform that actually treats them the best and not get Mm -hmm. trapped by benefits, which is kind of what happens right now. I mean, how many people do you know that might be willing to leave their job, but they're worried about losing their health care?
0: Yeah, of course. Well, I have to say that vision, it's not only that portable benefits would not only be profound for gig workers and domestic workers, but for all American workers, right? Tying our health care to our employer is very problematic, as we've seen. I mean, I have a a friend who is a nanny here in the Bay Area who is immunocompromised. And so she basically had to stop working when the pandemic hit. And she had no safety net whatsoever when she lost that job because she physically could not work. So I'm curious, we're, you know, six months into the pandemic now. This must have, in the absence of all the social safety net, this must have hit domestic workers really hard. Can you give us a sense of the magnitude of how domestic workers have been affected by the pandemic? Uh, It's been so
2: bad in the industry um, you guys, I it's been really heartbreaking and heart-wrenching to see yeah. what is happening to our members. And right when the pandemic hit, we like, as I was telling you, 72% of respondents reported
0: having no jobs wow. beginning like the first week in April. Because 72%. people, employers were just like... No house cleaner, no nanny, stay home, too dangerous. Sure, people were scared.
2: I think bottom line, what it meant, though, is that a lot of people who were vulnerable became more vulnerable really quickly. Mm -hmm. And none of them actually had access to the formal safety net, right? Because of immigration status, because they work Mm -hmm. in cash for the most part, because Mm -hmm. many of them don't have formal pay stubs, that then qualifying for unemployment, being a part of the beneficiaries of the Congress... Uh, the packages that Congress was passing to provide some level of relief, a large part of our workforce was just left out of a lot of that Mm. immediate relief.
1: You you brought up undocumented workers, and I did want to just maybe ask you about that, because I think that presents a whole other series of challenges for your organization and the technology as well. I mean, how do you get those folks to use Alia uh, and to use any kind of tool that could actually provide them with a safety net if they're kind of in the shadows. Or
0: if there's fear for... Retribution or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um,
2: I think that the fear is really real, and especially in this political climate, people are so scared. They're just so scared to give their information because they don't know who they're giving it to. I
1: -hmm. think one thing
2: that helps is that NDWA, in our movement, has a very long track record and is a known entity Um, So there's
0: trust there. I think
2: there's trust there. And I think you can look at that as a bit of a competitive advantage in terms of who we are. Our shareholder Mm -hmm. has always been domestic workers and will always be domestic workers. And that the technology that we built is advised and guided by domestic workers, both in terms of our focus on the users, but also through a whole set of industry councils that we have within our alliance that are made up of workers who I go to for, for advice, advice when I'm at forks in the road in terms of should we go in this direction or that direction. We're guided by workers all along the way.
0: I'm, I'm curious then, so if there's this trust between you and these workers and you've been building this alia platform precisely for kind of maybe not you didn't anticipate a pandemic, but, you know, for interruptions in work and to create the safety net. How have NDWA's members used the Aaliyah platform since the pandemic started? How have you, as the labs, been able to use the ALIA platform?
2: Well, when this crisis hit, and as I, we were seeing all these numbers in real time that I was sharing with you, you know, 80% of people who had a lot of work all of a sudden having no work the following week, mm-hmm. the entire ALIA team pivoted very quickly from our benefits product to thinking about how could we actually build a cash transfer product. Mm. We set a pretty modest goal for ourselves, right? To say, could we raise $4 million and literally just do cash transfers what are um, cash $400, transfers? $400 payments to domestic workers who have lost work or are need assistance in order to be able to stay Basically home in the Basically Doing
0: days. what the federal government's done for all the <laughs> yes, other workers. Correct. <laughs>
2: um, so we established the Corona Care Fund, began raising money through the social movement right around it, but then the ALIA team was tasked with figuring out what's the product, what's the mechanism on how you actually start distributing the funds. We we, when we started, we kind of built an MVP, you know, around how Mm -hmm. might we be able to do this? Yes, a minimum viable product.
1: Yeah, love it, love it.
2: (laughs) But very quickly, and this is, I think, we're so proud of all the momentum that we've built around the domestic worker movement. We raised thirty million plus dollars. Wow,
0: which meant we had to
2: build an entirely new product in house quickly in order to be able to
0: like take in the applications, manage the whole process. And how are you, domestic workers are so difficult to reach. How are you finding them all to get them this money? Yep.
2: The way that we started, and this is, we're a social movement organization, and we're a federation of 70 organizations all around the country who organize domestic workers. You're distributed So our too. footprint, exactly. We use that to our advantage and built a system that took the administrative burden off of those small organizations, built Mm. a centralized product and system, gave them tokens to hand out, passcodes, that then because they were vouching and you know they're on the front lines of our movement, Mm -hmm. we already have a trusted relationship, they're part of our alliance, they hand out the passcodes to domestic workers in need, and our system and product centrally is able to process all those applications and distribute payment. Mm. Hmm. It's been working so well that cities started coming to us and mayors started coming to us saying, hey, can you help us? build a fund for people who are left out of federal and state relief because our people are really hurting. And so the ALEA team, then we (laughs) launched another product called ALEA Cares, which was essentially leveraging what we built in-house for our own fund and offering it to municipalities or other local governments um, to assist them in their efforts. But this is where I think it was an incredible partnership between philanthropy so if you think about the Open Society Foundations and their infusion of, I think it was 40-plus million dollars into this kind of an effort, a cash trans- four cash transfers to people left out of relief, plus a social movement organization and our tech arm, which really understands the people who are left behind, meaning we build everything in English and Spanish. We have our eye around the fact that people are unbanked. How do you actually get money to people who don't have bank accounts and a whole host of other issues like fear and data? related issues. Yeah. Plus, I think in this moment, our team was so small, right? That we and we needed to build something fast. We actually called our friends at Google and said, Hey, can you guys help us? And so our friends at Google, because Google.org is an investor and a partner to NDWA Labs, sent over essentially a small little startup team to us. Oh, cool. They embedded in us under my direction and supervision and joined the Aaliyah team. And all of us together rapidly built the product that we're using, which we do plan to open source later.
1: That's that's really interesting. So, So you're bringing philanthropy together with your social movement organization and the tech that you've built, but they're also helping you- scale can i just project into the future a little bit i have a hypothesis which is what you're building with them seems like in tech speak like a fantastic proof of concept but that to actually scale it nationally scale how do you get a few years from now to a place where how do you get it to everybody
2: i think the corona care fund for us was about domestic workers specifically These funds that are popping up all around the country in cities with mayors or mayor adjacent efforts are for all left behind workers. And so, in some ways, we're already making the leap from domestic workers specifically to all kinds of people who've been left out of the safety net. Mm -hmm. And I think where we're going next is that the COVID crisis is so profound and it's shown such a light on the fact that so many people just work without any protection. I don't think there's any going back. And so, I think. The next phase of where we're going to be as we come out of emergency relief will be what are the interventions from a policy perspective on how it is that we're going to expand the safety net to accommodate all of the people that have been left behind. ALEA yeah. is one model of that. And in our case, like the lab is actually focusing on the hardest use case first, not the easiest use case first, because in our theory, like one, that's who we need to serve. But two, Mm -hmm. we have a theory that that will actually improve lots
0: more workers
2: if we can actually do the hard work of solving the hardest problem first. So
0: let's say five years from now, pandemic, hopefully long since behind us. What do you hope the silver lining of the pandemic will have been if there can be one? What change do you think we're going to see for domestic workers five years from now? And what is NDWA and specifically Aaliyah going to be doing five years from now?
2: It is my hope that through this crisis, we emerge with the desire to ensure that every hour that people work in this economy is protected and valued, regardless of who you work for, where you work, how you work, that we have this kind of fundamental belief that every hour of work deserves to be valued and protected. And that means our systems are really going to have to expand and change because we have a very bifurcated, uneven safety net in this country. And what the COVID crisis taught us was that when push comes to shove and when we're pushed to our limit, that system is not sufficient. It breaks. it breaks. It's incomplete and it breaks. Well and it's so, never
0: sufficient in the first place. Yeah. Know. Right. So
2: if that's the case, then this kind of just makes it so clear mm-hmm. and it brought a real focus to all of it. And and to be honest, like I have never seen in my career working on inequality this level of enthusiasm for for cash transfers.
0: I mean, it yeah. is kind of Really universal basic income is like all invoked. Nancy Pelosi is supporting some version of it, I think.
2: Which is really, you know, I mean, when you think about the systems that we've had, the hoops that people have to jump through, the proof that they have to show, like this whole kind of remember the whole welfare to work thing, the kind of racist stereotypes about who's on welfare, and which is really another version of cash transfers, right? So it's like I think we're in this really this really important moment of change. Um, and you layer on kind of the George Floyd protests, the wakening up about racism, right? All of these things are creating this incredible moment where we can, if we push through, get to the other side, at least on the issues that I am working on, and I think that a lot of fellow other activists and organizers are working on, where we can make some breakthroughs. And the breakthrough that I would like to see is that we permanently and fundamentally alter the safety net to protect every single person who works in this country.
1: So Pollock and the Alliance have essentially overnight, created, I should say, hacked together, to use a tech <laughs> term, a social safety net for this group of folks. It's, it's pretty incredible, but I'm not sure it can scale. I mean, it won't scale. We
0: need government to scale a solution like that. I think that's actually the point that she was making. Her yeah. end goal with the Aliyah platform is to get new laws passed so that Aliyah doesn't need to exist anymore.
1: And unlike the tech companies, her exit isn't going to be an IPO. It's going to be changing the law. And frankly, when the law changes, then the market's going to respond. Well, I do know that some gig work platforms have been
0: lobbying to change laws to allow for portable benefits. But I wonder why more of these companies aren't integrating with the Aaliyah platform. A bunch of them are advocating for portable benefits anyway.
1: Well, I'm not going to wait around. I'm going to ask our house cleaner how she wants us to contribute to her benefits.
0: Well, that feels like a really great outcome for this episode. And while you're doing that, I will pay closer attention to this movement for portable benefits and direct payments. It feels like the perfect time right now
1: to be promoting policy solutions like these. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap this episode. Join us next time. We'll be talking about how the pandemic is changing how we get around. This is Technopolis, and our COVID series is produced by Pizza
0: Shark and PostScript Audio. Our music is by CoPilot. Special thanks to
1: Charlie Wong for his help with this episode. I'm Molly Turner. And I'm Jim Capsis. You can follow us on Twitter at Technopolis And remember to wash your hands and please wear your mask.